Welcome to the Thrive at 20 podcast, where we're celebrating 20 years of Thrive Partnership Group by sitting down with leaders who have helped shape the legacy of the organization. Here's founder Rob Sagan in conversation with one of those leaders today. Good morning, Thrive at 20 podcast listeners. We're really excited to be joined by Duncan Reed this morning, who is a, a man of many things these days, but for one thing, a an investor, a uh, coach, a mentor. <laughs> Duncan, you'll have to take us through all of the titles that are uh, on your resume these days. So what what is the main thing you're known as? Oh, that's a, that's a loaded question. But thanks for having <laughs> me on the podcast, Robert. Really uh, appreciate it. So good to be here. Yeah. So officially principal consultant at DR Consulting, but that doesn't tell us much. But uh What's the main thing these days? What's that a covey expression? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So there you go. The main thing, if the main thing is what I what I want to be is is a a really good uh, coach around helping companies develop strong leadership teams and really drive clarity throughout throughout their organization, and uh, that comes a lot out of the you know the table group. uh, For those of you who know Patrick Quincioni. So that's that's my my joy and my passion. So I get to do that by being a part of a couple organizations. So yeah, that's that's who I am and what I what I'm doing now. Yeah, and uh, it sounds like you're having a lot of fun at it. We're going to get into how you ended up here, uh, but what's the what's the gig or the part of that right now that for you is the most engaging? Oh boy. Um, I think it's a lot of things. There's, um, you know, so I have, uh, individual coaching relationships and, mm-hmm. and I have, um, companies that are through, you know, there's a company that I'm helping my brother with. Um, there's a company I, w- I work with in Australia and just really great relationships with the people there. And so in, in those two cases, I've actually do a fair bit of work with them through operational things and 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 the one in australia is just really industry experience but then able to uh, take this stuff that i'm passionate about and apply it into those organizations and that's that's really i think where i i enjoy things so my life is at a stage now where i i i can do the things um, I'm not relying on it for income necessarily. So when I work with something, I'm I'm kind of all in. And then, um, you know, and then the, the financial relationship, I guess, comes out of that later. But it's somewhat secondary. So I'm fortunate that way that I can, as you say, have fun and and join in with companies that uh, can appreciate those services and um, where I can where I think I can add value. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. Hey, how the door gets open to something where you're helping a company halfway around the world and the doors open because they respect that you had 20 years in their line of business. Uh, particularly, I guess in this case with creation technologies, right? Your, right. your brother had a, a real good run there. And I want you to talk a little bit about that in a minute, but yeah, I, I found the same thing in my practice that sometimes it was just the door was open because people knew that I had walked at least a few days in their shoes and want to have some perspective uh, from the outside. So, you know, in, in, in my case, it was life science and, and, you know, maybe specifically the Botox piece and the marketing piece. Right. But in your case, 
you've got a client halfway around the world who the door got open because they go, hey, here's a guy who did this for 20 years. Maybe he can help us. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I'm curious to know your experience, but it's, it's interesting because in that case, you know, the woman who who runs the company in Australia just said, yeah, I, I'd love to hear your opinions on things. So mm-hmm. it's, it's less coaching, if you will. It's more just a sounding board. Yeah. And, um, and really, do you know how she heard about you? Like, right? what was the connection from her to you? Like, how did she find you or how did you find her? Yeah, that's, that's a really uh, funny story. So my uh, wife and I, I left creation in 2019 and just pre pandemic in 2020, we took our um, son who was doing a gap year in New Zealand. So we said, we've never been down that way. So we, we took him down there and his buddy and did the, you know, the camper van thing in all through New Zealand, dropped them off, got on a cruise and ended in Australia. And literally I was on Bondi beach. It was kind of a rainy day. So I'm on my, scrolling through my phone and I got this LinkedIn message from this woman who said she was told we needed to talk and she owned a electronic manufacturing company in Sydney, Australia. So Mm -hmm. um, that was way too much of a coincidence. So I texted her back and said, yeah, it's weird. I'm standing on Bondi beach right now. And um, here's my, here's my number. Give me a call. So she did. And she was still in the U S at the time at a trade show. And that's how she heard about me. And, and um yeah that's this history so to speak she must have been blown away to get your text to say yeah i'm in your neighborhood yeah. okay how what do you mean you're in my neighborhood i'm in your country halfway around the world on a beach yeah. <laughs> the first time too right so yeah that is so funny yeah so yeah so you're the most formative part of your business career i suppose you would say was creation technology which was like what 20 years you had to yeah exactly play with 20 that. years actually yeah and uh, for those that don't know you guys became quite a player in the electronic equipment manufacturing would that be the best way to describe your sector well like the official term is ems so electronic manufacturing services so we build stuff right. for other people but we're experts in, in putting electronic things with electronics in them generally. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, we, we build them up and creation is still go- going strong by the way. So it's, I'm okay. not involved anymore, but it's still going strong. Yeah. Is your brother still involved? No. So we had, um, so I, I can give you a little bit of the history, but mm-hmm. um, he started him and his uh, uh, college buddy started it, uh, bought a small company in 91 in North Vancouver which is now a bicycle shop actually. So there was like 30 <laughs> people working there and, and, um, and it was a good time to get into the industry because back then, you know, electronics was like, you know, stone wheels and that kind of thing. It was just so different than it is now. It, it, the technology has taken it to a, well, as most people know to a very different level. And so they went through the early growing pains of starting a company. They were, he, he was a CEA out of school. He, and it, a buddy who was an engineer who was working for this small company and they, they decided to buy it and they brought money from their, their parents and, and that whole bit. And it, and they almost lost their shirts in the first year. And then it, it kind of turned around and they, um, I think when I started in 99, they were, I think 30 million us in revenues. So significant growth. Right. And they, they because of the hardships they went through they became an employee-owned company so they let anybody who worked there um buy into the company literally buy shares so 
Um, and that, that started a really neat culture and, um, a pretty cool company. So, and, and so they moved down to Burnaby and I think they had, uh, you know, probably 20,000 square feet down there and they probably had a 150, 200 employees when I joined. And a lot of their customers were out this way in, in the Toronto area. And, mm -hmm. um, so they decided they were going to, they almost bought a small company and then they decided that didn't work out. So they greenfielded a site and, um, that was in 98. And, um, when I joined in 99, there was like 30 people working there in this big 20,000 square foot facility. And, um, so just for the people who don't know, we, we, so we would have automated equipment that would, um, solder parts onto circuit boards. And then from there we would do all sorts of other processes, including testing a product and maybe putting it into a box. So you could literally build a computer if you wanted, but mostly what we were building was for, you know, the medical industry for, in, you know, industrial controls and, and um, even military equipment, that kind of thing. So um, high amounts of working capital, a yeah. lot of labor and uh, relatively low margins, but revenues always, you know, you were, the revenues were high. So 30 million when I, I joined there and then the company, then we just took off in um, Ontario and uh, that was the beginning of my journey. I knew nothing about the industry. I grew up in, in the industrial gas industry. I was a chemical engineer by trade. And, and so this was more about leadership and, and um, learning how to manage and, and know a PNL and, and really um, learn how to lead people which I wasn't very good at back then. At least I <laughs> don't the, think I was. The so. original idea for, for moving away from your vocation in, in the, and your education background and pivoting over to this business in EMS, what was your attraction to it other than the obvious get to work with your brother and he was on to something pretty big? Yeah, I think it was it was the team and it was having ownership. So okay. I went all in. I, I brought, I took all my, you know, we were purely Canadian company at the time, privately held, obviously, and, um, but employee owned and, and I could, I took all my RSPs. Like I'd been working for 14 years. So I had a bit of savings and took all of that and then borrowed more. So I, I, you know, did the opposite of what any investment advisor would tell you to do. And I went all my eggs in one basket, so to speak. And um, best thing I ever did, but it was very stressful. I mean, sure. I think there was a lot of us who kind of, we say we bought our jobs. Um, but the leadership team at the time, they if they were hiring someone at a, you know, a reasonably high level in the company, they wanted them to have skin in the game. So if you weren't going to invest, then, um, you know, they'd be asking why. And, um, but the ones, those of us who did it early on and, and, went all in we probably three months in we went what the heck did i just do you know had that had that question so um but yeah and then the company you know it started growing we you know i've told you this story many times but we went in ontario went from you know the 30 people to um did a small um asset buy of a company and um and then grew to a second site we didn't want our sites to get too big so we grew a second site which I ended up running in Markham and they, um, you know, so the numbers are, we went from probably 50 to 
Um, the company went from 30 million to um, 200 plus in a, in a couple, three years. Um, and uh, we, we went from 30 people to um, about 400 in Ontario pretty quickly. So why so, didn't you guys want to see a site get big? Like, why not just make one big place? Yeah, we, we read some books, <laughs> so we, we, we realized that, you know, there's all these stats that said, if you, if, uh, if a site got bigger than a hundred people, it'd be hard to know everybody's name and you, it would get bureaucratic and, and that kind of thing. It was hard. We, we eventually got up to two to 300 people, but we worked really hard at, um, building relationships with all our people. And um, setting up, you know, we do everything like take, uh, you know, on the month of your birthday, that you know, someone from the leadership team would take seven or six or seven of you out for lunch together and and just celebrate your birthday and get to know you. Um, we do stuff like that. We would try to do a lot of things to make sure that people felt it felt like family. And, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, so we did, did a lot of cool stuff that way. And I think it made a lot of sense. So we stayed um, we also had pretty close relationships with our customers, so we wanted to be relatively close. So we had customers in the, um, you know, our first facility was in Mississauga, so the west end of Toronto. And then, um, so we moved, we opened this new one in, in Markham. So it was kind of, you know, I think they're 50 kilometers apart. And yeah. um, So you knew the 401 like the back of your hand? 407, actually. Oh, it, it had come <laughs> into play with it, thank goodness. Very well. So. So those are two really, at the time, fairly radical concepts, right, for building a company, one around ownership by all employees, and the other is really emphasizing culture. So where did those two things come from? Like, who were, who, who had that bold, those bold ideas and decided to put their money behind it instead of just reading about it in a book? Yeah, I think I, so the, some of it was, um, it wasn't smarts. It was just being in the trenches. So I think my brother and his partners early on realized, man, we, we got to figure out how to get through the storm, you know, um, early days when, a you know, their major source of customer, which was the biggest customer jettisoned them when right after they did the deal. So they were, they weren't going to be profitable unless they changed things pretty quickly. So they did temporary layoffs and, and then, you know, they said, Hey, when, if you come back, you can, you can buy into the company. So that was a bit, you know, how do we get people really concerned about the company and, and, and helping us to succeed. And so that was one thing. So just having people, literally people that were assembling things on the production floor, having ownership. I mean, if you bought a new piece of equipment, they'd ask why, right? So it created a culture from a financial um, ownership tie. So that became one of our core values was we called it entrepreneurship, but having everybody feel like an owner that worked there. And, um, then when we, um, started growing, we were fortunate and had some great people come on board with some of the acquisitions. And I think one of the strengths was when we did the acquisitions, particularly when we bought a, a, a company in Milwaukee in like 2004 and, and some of the leaders there, um, uh, one leader in particular who, um, I haven't talked to in a long time, but if he ever hears this, Pat, um, 
kudos. He was he was an, uh, a real cultural leader, and he he talked about how to be different in that area. And um, and one of those things was growing um, without getting too big. And I I don't know if it was I don't think it was him, but it was it was another one of the owners who read the story around. I think it was um, oh it was uh, a clothing company. Um, Oh shoot! I'm forgetting the name off the top of my head. It was a Canadian. Uh, no, it was the U.S. company, but um, they made that water breathable, waterproof material. Um, but anyways, they they were just adamant about it, and there was some books about it. And um, one of our owners just fell in love with it, that model, and that's so we started that. And then Pat was one of I think a cultural leader that said, you know, we we really need to formalize this. What we're about you know, have a real purpose um, and, and drive clarity around that, have core values that we don't just stick on a wall. We, we talk about, we, we celebrate that kind of thing. So I think those, um, so it was people, it was people who had a vision and, and were able to um, get people aligned with it. Yeah, but credit to you, your brother and the other existing senior leaders at creation. It's not often that the acquiring company, pays much attention to the people that you acquire. They tend to buy the assets or the market position or some piece of their business infrastructure needs to be added. So they, they make that kind of move and just integrate it. Um, in, you know, a lot of acquiring companies talk about, well, we'll take a look at the talent and try to keep the best people, but they rarely do it because they don't usually take enough time to do the due diligence and, and people get on with their lives. So how was it that you guys were able to slow the process down and realize this guy, Pat, knew a thing or two that he would add a lot more than just the company that you bought from underneath him? I think part of it, um, my, my personal journey would play this out, but I think before I was in at that level of leadership, I think they um, they were overwhelmed. I mean, my brother had to hire his brother. <laughs> so, like, I mean, we, we were scrounging for people in, um, you know, when you grow that fast, it's not like you just, hey, you know, see a uh, pick a pick from a lineup of people. It was hard to find good people, and if you knew someone that was good at their job, even if it was outside the industry, you'd you would see if they were interested. And um, so, hired friends, um, you know, but really just looking for people. So when we were acquiring, when we wanted to grow, we were we were doing the normal stuff. We were saying, Hey, we want to be in this region. We want this expertise. So the technical expertise was important too, trying to get that in, but we needed people. And in fact, I think, I think you and I've talked about this before, but I think one of the things that I would do differently if I was making all the decisions, I think where companies fail when they integrate other companies is they don't transmit their, um, their core values and their culture well like you have to you know once you when you're growing at that kind of rate yeah i think what we could have done differently was saying you know hey these are core values um they're not for everybody but we're really passionate about them so we just ask you to consider them and if you don't like them you know hey we'll miss you <laughs> you know like if you want to but we we really believe that you know if you work here these this is the way we operate this is what we we need you to be passionate about if you want to be in leadership in this com company i don't think we did that as well as we could have we were kind of the polite canadians i guess because most of our acquisitions were in the u.s 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what were the ramifications of not being um, as insistent as you think you should have been? What were the downsides that you observed? I think you got lip service. Like we talked about it a lot. We were passionate about it. And, um, but we didn't really enable the leaders of these companies that we bought to ingrain it because it was so new to them. So, and we were super busy. So we, you know, we were just trying to keep our head above water at the, in, in those days, you know, so integrating, there's so much to do. I mean, it's, it's a complex business at, at, at the best of days and then integrating yeah. systems and you know what it's like. You, you it's, it's just a lot of work. So it's a lot of work, uh, and there's not much room for error because you got all that working capital and so much of your cash tied up in inventory. And if you make mistakes more than once, you get buried. I mean, you can make them once, but you better learn quick because you know all of a sudden your inventory goes through the roof and all your cash is tied up, and you can't operate as as you'd like to. So yeah, you're on such a razor's edge of uh, allowance, so to speak. Mm-hmm. That yeah. Uh, but what would have, do you think, Ben, if you got a chance to replay it, how would you have replayed it specifically as you made those acquisitions? If you could have slowed it down and taken a different approach with the culture, what would that have looked like? I, I, I probably a little um, more cross pollination, like taking, you know, we call them general managers at the time, uh, you know, a, a, a site leader, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. From an established site, and and almost switch them up. Get get um, um, get the leader from the other the the acquisition into an established site, and see how things operate. So they can um, they can speak their experience into the crazy stuff we were doing because we weren't doing things perfectly. But I, my gut is those would be a lot more uh, of the tactical things, and then have them experience. How how meetings went, how we we listened to pretty much everybody, how we did, you know, communicated really well, um, those kind of things. Um, I think they could learn by being a part of it, as opposed to just saying, "Hey, this is what we do. Try this, try that," and they never even sat in through anything like that. So, yeah, but that's investment, right? That's hard mm-hmm. to do. Oh. When you reflect back on that experience that you had over 20 years, especially that piece around integration, how does that inform the way you help your client in Australia or in Vancouver or elsewhere that you lean in? Yeah, so there's a couple answers to that question. Because the business in Australia is is, is quite similar, um, they're actually in a stage where they're, they're going to be uh, potentially doing acquisitions and 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 some growth, so it's really getting clarity around what their culture is and what they've uh, and they're super excited about it. So then I think it's uh, I I think Australians are akin to Canadians. It's it's a bit more. You have to be super firm about that when you know you have to be as firm about that as you are with your finances, mm-hmm. right? So. Um, uh, the woman who runs the business there is just, she's incredibly smart and she's really good at knowing the business. And she's now it's, how do you translate that when you do an acquisition? So that's going to be a whole new, new game. Right. And, you know, it's, so it's bringing back a lot of memories. So yeah, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'm helping her hopefully and, and hopefully guiding her in that direction. Um, 
And then, uh, you know, the other companies that I'm working with, I'm really doing a lot more operations. And then I get a chance to play a little bit of the consultant and do, um, you know, try to bring the clarity. So the other companies don't really have, they're so early stages, they don't really have a, you know, what Lencioni would call a why. And um, and so we're just formulating that now and, and getting people excited about it and then rolling it out and putting the clarity out to the organization in a way that they, that, you know, everybody that works there gets excited about it and then putting the integrity around it to say, yeah, we we're serious about this. So if you're not on board, then please don't stay. And, and then making it part of the hiring process that these, you know, um, the way we behave is important to you as us. And, and the reason we exist is as important to you as us. Those yeah. kind of things. So what would you say is the most important ingredient to the 20 years of success that creation had when you were there? Plus now it's sustained itself for another, what, 10 years since you left. Uh, how has it pulled that off in your estimation, given that there's so many uh, dead carcasses in the, the ditch around them? Like, you know what I mean? That industry has so much... Uh, so many more losers than winners. So how is it pull, how did they pull it off? What was the main thing that drove so much success for creation and still does? Well, I think there's two there's two big things. Um the kind of base thing was, um, and I credit my brother for this, he was very physically conservative. So he didn't go after the quick wins. And the company didn't, you know, they'd talk about it. So he made it we we were very good at looking at our financials and knowing where we stood and right. knowing what our key measures were for pretty much anybody who would listen in the organization. And, you know, obviously the leaders in the organization would have to know it cold. I remember coming in as an engineer and, and, and just hearing all these financial terms that I'd never heard before. And I, you know, you, you don't ask, you just kind of Google it or back then, you, you know, I remember when I first joined there, there was a, when you hit the Google thing, you heard a modem dial up the internet. <laughs> so but yeah, so financial understanding and um conservative in growth, even though we were growing so quickly, we didn't we didn't go after flash in the pan stuff because those are the things that implode and take down and, and we saw that take down a lot of our competitors. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the biggest thing I think, and for me was um, building strong leadership teams that were really teams. So, and it's, it's why I think I do what I do now. I, I hit a wall when we were in that hyper growth and I, I was, I think I was relatively normal, but probably I never considered myself OCD, but I had to know everything because I was concerned about the financials. So yeah. I, I was into every detail. I'd wake up at night in cold sweats thinking we lost money when, you know, because I did something wrong and it was just too much to bear. And it was just, it's terrible leadership. So I, I hit a wall and, and, and I, I promised myself the next person I, I hire would be someone that I asked to do my job in two or three years. So in other words, they have more experience, leadership skills than I did. And probably the best thing I ever did. Um, I didn't actually have to do that. Um, but a lot of people that I hired, you know, I had turnover because of promotions. Right. And yeah. 
it was it was yeah it was those some of those people are the best of friends now you know some of them and and um yeah so hiring people that and and obviously if you hire people that you think know more than you do you listen to them a lot and um so creating really kind of a flat leadership team structure where we spoke in each other's lives pretty directly and and pretty candidly um but there's a mix of ingredients in there duncan that uh, helps me helps me understand why the learning curve for you is so steep um, and now so beneficial to your clients is that, I mean, just think about this as you describe it. What I'm hearing you say is you went all in, you took your life savings and put it, bet it, so you, you bet big. And then mm-hmm. you went into a business that had, you know, some really unique variables, razor thin margins, not much opportunity for missteps, uh, highly competitive, very dynamic too. The technology was changing very quickly. You were suddenly coming up against the reality of all these free trade agreements around the world when uh, your competitor wasn't just in Mississauga or Markham, but it was halfway around the world in China or Mexico. And, you know, like, holy Mm -hmm. cow, that creates an environment where you had no choice but to grow up quickly as a leader because there was just, you know, like a lot of my clients are in the life sentence industry and gosh, the gross margins on products like Botox are like 95%. So, you know, what did my old boss used to say? A dog with a note in his mouth could sell that crap. Uh, it, it, it just, it leaves a lot of room for error. You can, you can, you can think, you know, your God's gift to leadership, but you know, you make a mistake who notices where in your case, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night with sweats thinking, Oh my God, that last acquisition that could pull that could pull us down and if it pulls us down it pulls me down like i'm going i'm going overboard when this ship sinks i'm 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 anchored to it yeah i i i think you know it's 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 an ebb and flow right so the highs and the lows and i i think part of it is just being in it together with other people too so that um camaraderie with um, you know, what we called our executive leadership team, which was all the site leaders and, and, uh, the C-suite, I guess. And they, and we met, uh, pretty regularly and, and shared what was going on and that we had this, um, we start every leadership team meeting with this thing called good news roundtable recognition. And you had to say good news at the start because otherwise people would just don't have the crap that was going on and it'd be a pretty depressing meeting. But we worked really hard at, you know, and we'd share our life story, you know, what's going on in life. So we really got to know each other. But it was it was good news, you know, then roundtable, what's going on. So people were in the know and then and then recognizing, you know, hopefully some people that are doing really well in your in your individual organization. So it became a real cultural thing of celebrating who we are and 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 the highs and the lows. And I I remember being new to that role and hearing um you know some of these guys that were really seasoned and, and you know ran their own businesses for a while that we acquired and and they would they would say stuff that you know I just I wouldn't say any I just hear that they were doing something I'm going I can't believe I'm not doing that and I'd just go do it. Probably yeah. the easiest way to transmit stuff without putting it on a to-do list and making it a burden for some people. It's just tell the good things that are going on. And um it it you know it transmits throughout the organization well it does if people have ego strength i mean if you i'm sure you can imagine there were some people in that room who didn't take notes and didn't go try the idea 
like just thought, well, good for you. That wouldn't work for me. Or I don't think that's that smart. I think you got lucky. You know, all that shite that goes through your head when you, you listen to somebody else talk about a breakthrough. And yeah, but good for you that you had the ego strength to go, hmm, that's really interesting. I, I could yeah. try that. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think part of it is, is you're, you know, you know, with, when you're in a, a, a dark place and you're, you're overwhelmed, you know, you, you start grasping for things. And I think that experience for me was so um, changing for me that I was able to, you know, we, we had a term, we called it, uh, we use the term swipe. It says steal with integrity and purpose. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you didn't, if you were always coming up with your own idea, you probably weren't a good fit for this group. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we would, we, you know, why invent something new? A lot of people are doing different things just look around and, um, swipe those ideas and you're probably going to make them a bit better every time you, 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 you put them in place. So, yeah, I would would say that just back to your question, the whole leadership team thing, I think Mm -hmm. the difference was when you were, when we were all owners in the company to some varying degree, we all had skin in the game. Yeah. The egos get packed pretty quickly because you're, no one's, you know, people are going to say what they think before they stay quiet because there's a lot on the line. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was just about to ask you that those were two, slightly ahead of their time ideas uh trying to find a way to create that ownership mindset and you took the straightest line between those two dots you just did it as opposed to the conceptual people really did have ownership so the question i have that i'm thinking about is well why did you do that what were the real outcomes because that was radical in its time and the other thing was to emphasize culture as much as you guys did from the outset well now that's a thing but 30 years ago, that wasn't a thing. So for the, you've already answered the first one in the sense that the biggest benefit was the quality of the engagement, the exchange, you know, when it's my money, <laughs> my, my questions are smarter, right? I'm not playing with your money. Yeah. Uh, but the culture thing at that time, that was not a widely accepted concept like it is today. Right, where so many books, I think Harvard Business Review, you now like half their articles are on culture. Yeah. Uh, Twenty years ago, you might see one a year. <laughs> so, mm. when you guys were emphasizing culture, you must have got some strange looks from people, especially those acquire companies you acquired. Must have thought, "What well, these Canadians are weird." Um, mm. But why? What was the insight you had as a leadership team back then that? the rest of the industry and certainly outside of the electronics industry, people have woken up to it. What did you guys see back then? Why, why so much emphasis on culture? Hmm. I, well, you know, first of all, you know, a lot of it came from all parts of the company. So including America, it wasn't a Canadian thing by any stretch, but okay. one of the things we, uh, the CEO we had, um, early on was just incredibly good at process and would, um, you know, just drive structure into things. So when culture almost, he processized it in a way. So he said, Hey, we need leadership training leaders over managers, right? We wanted people leading 
people and managing process. And I remember early on, how do we train people in, in a way? So we, you know, we did train the trainer. We did seven habits for highly effective people. That was a big part of what this guy Pat brought to the table. He was a big fan of that. Mm-hmm. And then we started going to this thing called the Global Leadership Summit. So anybody on a leadership team. So by this time we were five, five plus business units and anybody on a leadership team or even outside it would, you know, we'd pay for them to go to this two day thing. And it was, it was video cast all over North America on a certain day in, in, in the two days in the summer. And it was through a church, which was interesting in Chicago. And so it was kind of churchy, but it was four leaders, but they had the best um, and brightest leadership gurus talk at these summits. And for me, one of the big things was when you learned as a team, it was pretty hard. It was almost hard not to implement it because, you know, if you were doing something that was offside a bit from a culture point of view, you, you someone would remind you about a talk. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. and, we'd start, and then we'd start to formalize that and say, hey, you know, this talk on this, we could use that in our annual uh, we you know a performance review but we call it a we call it a partnership discussion and still to, the, to this day because of those talks we formulated something created something that was fairly unique and i still share it with other people um that i'm coaching now to this day because it's such a great way to kind of shift the mindset a bit and be more relational than transactional with your people and um yeah, so I think getting leaders to learn together is a huge piece of it because again, you're you're leveling the paying, playing field. And I think you know this is is that you know especially in a big organization, you're it's hard to be the person at the top of the pyramid. You mm-hmm. need feedback. You need you know, and it's hard when you're running a hundred miles an hour. You don't have time for feedback. You just want to get stuff done. Yeah, and that never works well like that whole slow is fast concept and you know getting people on the same page and 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 seeing the clarity of where you're going um is such a huge power and i think that's that's what that's how i describe culture is just having clarity around purpose and you know values and um what we do as a business and how we succeed the skeptics would say like that all sounds nice but I got a job to do, like you say, get to the to-do list because there's a lot of it. Um, what's the so what? Like, what's the convincing argument that, you know, uh, answers the that sort of little expression we hear all too often these days that culture eats well, strategy for I, breakfast? I'm to know your take on this, but, you know, I, I agree with you. There's tons of books on culture now, mm-hmm. and there's, there's a lot of different ways to do it. But I still find... Um, resistance this is going to sound arrogant of that but people don't get it like they 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 give it lip service but they don't understand it and i i read a recent article i think i sent it to you on just the roi on culture and it was really succinct and it just you know if you work in like you and i do with teams that pride themselves having a healthy organization not just a smart one they they've never seen one um, not grow or not get super profitable and super focused. Like it's yeah, but I think the skeptics and the cynics out there, 
even if they read those articles, which they rarely do since they see this headline, they think, oh, yeah, that, what's that expression? Liars, damn liars, and statisticians. You can you can yeah. bend anything retrospectively to make it look like the main ingredient was culture. And even people were skeptical, skeptical about uh, Jim Collins' work, which I thought was intriguing because when you go back to look at, say, good to great, the premise of the book, as I remember it, was he and some PhD students were uh, quite, in, there was a quite of an integrity, a bit of integrity to their approach. They really wanted to know what was the reason behind sustainably successful businesses and their peers. So over the fullness of time, I think it was a 15-year time band, how was it that some companies like Walgreens and Whole Foods and others had separated themselves from the pack and maintained that separation? What, what would explain it? And they went into it with a real open mind and came out the other side. And one of the biggest takeaways was culture. And so that got my attention. But I think most people, even with really well-written, really well-communicated books who are busy running businesses, if someone even brought their, their attention, their first response is, yeah, some guy trying to write a book, make money, you know, bent the story, you know, yeah. I don't care, yeah. I'm busy. So and I think there's a couple things that I've seen get people to pay attention to it. One is obviously if there's a crisis and it's the learning is forced upon them. And that was probably a little bit an element for me personally was, and I'll share that in a second. But the other is when I'm talking to people who really are cynical and skeptical about it, I find myself saying, okay, well, hang on. <laughs> if you had an experience like I had where you had your best boss, uh, you know, it, and you were you were making a lot of people a lot of money. You were on fire. You were you were, you were really productive. You were running through the wall for your company and just you know on the top of your game. If you had the experience where within that changed and you got a bad boss, you were in a toxic environment. Did you notice a difference in your own effectiveness? Like I had the opposite mm. with a with a a new client I was talking to, and she said, "No, I I mean I had the opposite experience where I had a really bad boss." Then I had a really good one, same job, and I found myself just going from very low level of productivity to extraordinary. And I said, well, there you go. It's the same math. And I remember standing in front of a group of 200 of my peers at a big industry association in life science, and I, I asked the audience that question. I said, I want you to imagine the best boss you ever had, and, and when you were at your peak of your performance and productivity, and contrast that to the worst boss you ever had. And when I get to the percentage difference in those two scenarios, in terms of your productivity, put your hand up. So how many people felt like the difference between those two was 5%? Nobody's hands went up. It wasn't until I got to 50%, some hands started to go up in the room. And when it got to like 100%, then everybody's hands were up. Like it's, we all have that personal experience that if you've been in your career for more than you know five or six years, you've seen the impact that the environment around you has had on your mojo, your esprit de corps, the wind in your sail, whatever you want to call it, your discretionary effort, I suppose, is another way to think about it, right? Mm. And if you've got a bad boss in a bad environment, you eventually settle in to do just enough to keep your job. And you're maybe even talking to recruiters and you're just keeping your boss off your back. But you're not really making the company any money. <laughs> you're just barely earning your paycheck. Maybe you're not even doing that. And when you put people in the right sort of little Petri dish, give them all the right ingredients, I mean, you've seen it in your own career. You've probably seen it a lot of creation because you created that environment for people or worked hard to intentionally do that. Like they'll surprise themselves. <laughs> like they'll go, wow, look at me. You know, so the, 
when there's that much mathematical difference, when you hold all the other variables constant in productivity because of the impact of work culture, to me, the math is convincing. And for most people, when you make it personal like that, then they get it. Reading articles, reading books, having someone else tell them about it, most people don't get it. Yeah. And I, and I think in, in that moment, then it's even degrees, like having a good boss makes a difference. But what makes a good boss, right? It's like everything from, you know, you hear terms like servant leadership and, and you know, it's all like people, you know, what the heck is that? And, you know, I, I got to tell people what they need to get done, right? And, you know, so there's, there's all, you know, it's relational. And anytime something's relational, it needs experience and it needs stories and it needs some sort of structure to, to label it. So there's some degree of accountability and those, you know, what I think the difficulty is it's too vague for people. Well, what made that boss good? Wasn't that he, but I like, but I like the bag chair and bought me lunch. Right. Yeah. But I like that you immediately, when you saw the same thing I saw through a different lens and set of experiences, you didn't just cast it aside or go, well, that's kind of neat. Maybe I'll just try to make a great culture for the people around me. Your, your curiosity made you go, hmm, okay, but what's the root cause of that culture? It's probably a great boss. So doesn't it beg the question, what makes a good leader and how do great yeah. leaders create great culture? Like that, I think that's maybe why your learning curve continued to be uh, quite significant over those 20 years. You didn't stop learning because I think you asked the right next question. <laughs> like, okay, so let me look in the mirror and figure out what's my part in all this. If I'm a team leader, a business unit leader here at Creation, you could argue I'm as much responsible for the culture as anybody. So what am I doing about it? Or how can I do it better if it makes that much of a difference on performance? Yeah. And I think it's, it's doing it in a, in a team. I remember we, you just me, I don't know why I just thought of this, but you, the one line I can claim as my own um, when I, when we were going through challenging times as a team and I had a pretty strong team working with me and I remember saying, yeah, we got to, we got to somehow get this done. And it was a pretty major task. And and one of the guys just looked at me, he says, that's, that's really hard. And I said, well, if it was easy, I'd do it. <laughs> so that became my, <laughs> my, my mantra, right? Like, it's like, if it was easy, you know, what, what yeah. are we doing here? Right. So it was, it was, it, but when you, when you, it was funny as a team, you know, and I had personalities that my team changed me on. Like I was always wanting to climb the next hill and, you know, I, w I wasn't much of a person who would sit there and go, Oh, that was really good. You know, it, let's okay. Let's have a piece of cake with lunch and celebrate it. And then we're done. Right. And, and I learned that that's not the way things roll like celebrating good things is such a huge motivator for people and but that's not my personality so i have to adjust mm -hmm. and i couldn't do that make those adjustments if i didn't have a strong team around me it sounds like you had the i think i keep coming back to this notion of ego strength that i think that's your secret weapon here your uh superpower I, it's funny. I, I've been I've been excited about that concept now for a few years, and I see it in my client work too. I try to encourage people to have conversations with each other and make sure that everybody in the room knows what their superpower is, because 
A, hearing about it from other people is so affirming. But B, then it makes you confident, raises your mojo. You start to realize I should double down on his strength. Mm. But when I listen to you tell your story, that's what I'm hearing is your superpower is ego strength. Like not, a lot of people went through things that like you did at creation, but most of them would miss the obvious. Like, okay, so what can I do to internalize that? How do I learn from that? How do I change my behavior as a leader? <laughs> you know, sorry, but 90% of people don't ask that next question. Yeah, so, it's funny. I think if my team heard you say that, they'd probably go, no, we had to, we had to pretty much yell at them. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think, I think there's, you know, I have so many mental images right now, people saying, looking at me and going, why don't you get this? <laughs> so it's, it's like, but the strength for me was having, people around that cared enough um, about me personally as much as the business and that's what makes a strong team saying i want this person to win and you know ultimately as a leader when someone's not winning in the role that they're in sometimes you have to take them out of that role and it's the best thing you can do for them right you mentioned yeah. good to great earlier and i think this whole idea when you work in an organization where it's very much driven on people and it's the people are the biggest costs to the organization you know so at creation parts were our biggest but you know we hired a lot of people and having the wrong people on the bus as jim collins would say is is a real problem and i remember in his book he talked about yeah if, if you have someone working for you that if if they um if they resigned you'd be secretly happy or if, <laughs> if you had the choice to hire them again and the answer was no i wouldn't hire them again like either of those answers said you have to you're, you're it's not fair for you to keep that person yeah like that's been a bit of a and hard like you need to be brutally strict around that because you're hurting the other people in your organization if it's not a fit and oh, I, I remember that. Yeah, and, and it sounds like you and I had the same experience. Now I hear back from so many people, so I think it's a pretty common step forward in, in anybody's career. When you first start leading people, you're paid to manage a group or a team. It, invariably, you have that. You have to be able to cross that bridge. Some people never get across it, but you have to have the courage to go across that bridge of, oh, yeah. okay, well, if you have a mediocre performer, you know, what's the, what's that expression from the Marines? You're only as fast as your slowest Marine. Uh, and, and you, and, and, and even in, I remember in my first significant people gig, when I was asked to run a business unit, I'd come back from the States and I inherited this team. And within days I had people come to me and go, well, you need to do something about, I'll change his name. Cause I, I don't want to make anybody too uncomfortable. Well, let's say his name was Paul. Yeah. You need to do something about Paul. He's, you, you you know i go well, okay wait wait a second why why are you the third person to come and tell me this out of the blue and then they would tell me stories and you go oh okay so paul organized a major client meeting and just didn't show up okay and then oh uh, paul said something in a meeting that uh you know not only raised the eyebrows but people thought that he was not even being just being controversial but being obtuse like trying to get people to not like him like really strange behavior mm. and it happened so quickly and like it was like a tsunami came at me i was hadn't even moved yet from new york back to toronto and i was getting all this stuff thrown at me and about i don't know probably about two months later i'm putting up with it and my boss has even come to me and said you know i'm hearing what you're hearing one of the reasons i brought you up here was to 
you know, move this business forward. And so what have you done about it? I said, no, I've got a plan. And then he, he just shook his head, walked away. And then about a, a week and a half later, he came and he goes, look, he closed the door. He goes, okay, look, I can't watch this anymore. What are you doing? And I go, what do you mean? He goes, why are you hanging on to Paul? I go, well, I try to explain my way through it and rationalize it. It's all about saving him. And I think I can, you know, get him to a better place and blah, blah. And he goes, do you think you're doing that guy any favors? He said, look, I've been thinking about how I could get you to see this. And you're, you're just too much of a sensitive person. Like I, I can't appeal to your left brain here. I'm trying to appeal to your sensitivity. And he wasn't a sensitive person. He was a bit of a hard ass. <laughs> he's gone. So do you think you're doing this guy any favors? Like, is he happy right now? Is he having a good time? Don't you think he knows he's failing? And it really woke me up. It was like, you're hurting this guy. Yeah. If for no other oh, reason, so like, why are you hurting this guy? And I looked at him like, holy crap, he's right. You know? <laughs> so, and it was just the most extreme circumstances. Now I look back and think, what, what a knucklehead I was. I mean, the guy probably had, uh, well, can't say 100% for certain, but I, if I had to bet my life on it, he had a dependency issue. And the behavior was just erratic and crazy. Sometimes when he was on his game, he was extraordinary. But then when he was off his game, he was just. Whew. Yeah, you know, you remind me of a, a a couple key things that I think were more valuable than I can imagine um, that we did at Creation. And one of them was, you know, in a in a situation like that. First of all, why are people telling you about another person right like so someone mucked up that person wasn't called out on doing these crazy things mm-hmm. most likely um and it 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 it's almost to the point where how did you know what was the culture like that everybody came and told you about another person the first day you got on the job right and um so i i kudos to you for for finally doing the deed and making the change. But what's really interesting to me is we had this thing, the term was, we called it loyalty to the apps. And I think it comes out of seven habits somewhere, but it, we just wouldn't talk about people negatively unless you were coaching someone on how to deal with it. Right. So if someone came to my office and said, you know, Oh, Paul, that guy is driving me nuts. And the, they know the first thing I'm going to say to them is say, well, did you talk to him about it? Yeah, yeah. And he they'd often say, Well, yeah, I talk to him about it all the time. Really? Well, what did he what did he say? And then you're in a bit of a coaching thing. And so do you need me in the meeting with you when you talk to him about it? I'm happy to do that, but I don't want to sit here and hear you badmouth him. Yeah. Right? Unless yeah. it's a, a legal issue, you know, there's abuse or something. And and it changed everything. <laughs> then, you know, the team would say, This is a problem. And they would deal with it. And the person knew. So it was, so it became a team thing all of a sudden. And that's very uncomfortable, right? Like if, you know, it could even happen in in the room, you know, you're having a meeting and someone says, you know, why the heck weren't you there when you organized a customer meeting or whatever it was? And he would explain it in front of a, it's a lot harder to answer, make excuses in front of a team of people than it is for one person. Yeah. And so creating that team environment, it's, it's, it's huge, but it was just that little thing. Like I remember being in a, a hallway at creation and, and we were having a discussion and we started talking about someone and it was all innocent, you know, oh, well, that person really needs to improve in this area. And then it, 
you know, it, people are kind of teaming up on, on, on that thought. And then one person said, and it wasn't me, and I was the leader, and it wasn't me. And they said, hey, this feels like a loyalty absent thing. And we all looked at each other and went, oh, and we turned busted. around and walked away from each yeah, other right now, right? Because we knew we were, <laughs> we knew we were on the side. So, but if you think about it, you're building, it's all about building trust, right? If, if, if you know, a person comes to you and starts bad-mouthing someone else, if they're thinking about it logically, if you're listening to them about someone else, you're probably listening to someone else about them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So there's, it, 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 it never ends well when it's that kind of toxic environment. Right. So anyways, that just made me think of that when you, you, you said that story. So, well, the other thing I'm eager to unpack with you is you mentioned a minute ago that you had a bit of an epiphany when you realized you couldn't just do everything yourself and, you know, your engineering background, your, your sort of personality, of you know, get things done, follow the process, move things forward. And then, you have that epiphany that says, whoa, <laughs> that's not really working for me when there's so much coming at me. I got to start hiring people smarter than me. And then, okay, so now that ingredient gets into the mix. I'm really curious to think, to sort of get you to reflect on, okay, so now you surround yourself with all these extremely talented people. What did you learn about harnessing all that talent on a team? Well, I think it, it wasn't overnight for sure, um, but and and you know different um, personalities and 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 types of people were at play, um, but I think it was new to them as well to be in it. You know, some of them came from, um, you know, Charles. We're in a group with Charles together, so you know him, and he he came across from uh, Celestica, so big company, and and. Um, very sophisticated environment and he yeah. he tells a story about feeling a part of something and just you know having to count his account as pennies when he went on an expense trip to you know people really caring about him in a different in different ways i think he was just in an environment that he wasn't used to and he being a good leader just adapted to it and 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 then grew in it so i think I I thought that the hard part was finding the people for mm-hmm. sure. And you yeah. never, you never do it perfectly as you know, like, as you describe, you, you always hire someone thinking, Oh, they're going to be great. And then they're not. <laughs> so you have to get good at, at assessing that and, and changing that. So it wasn't an overnight thing by any stretch, but there was a few early wins and, and then, um, you know, it, you, you, once you have, one or two people like that, they're going to help you find more, and more people like that. So, yeah, um, but it's a huge, yeah. it's a huge um, amount of positive pressure on a leader. And I've seen this quite a bit since I got on this side of the desk, observing and helping and navigating leaders. Cause I remember going through it. And now it's a chance to sort of reflect on the experience. And like you, that's a steep learning curve. It's quite a different challenge to, be, be seen and known as the leader. The, if you have to be the subject matter expert, you can, then you could say even the smartest person in the room on that tactical area, whether it's marketing or it's operations or whatever it might be, you know, medical affairs, whatever the discipline is. And I, I, I have a leader that I work with who she's struggling with. She gets it intellectually, but to really hire 
tremendously smart people who might be better than her and 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 will probably be better than her in her career and move past where she is is a i mean she gets it in her head but she just can't do it she's much more comfortable hiring junior people to go do her bidding and just do it they you know not what they're told but you know what i mean <laughs> that sort of task orientation where you farm the work out to people and they come back and tell you how they're doing well that's a big there's a big difference between that and hiring folks with tremendous potential more than yours smarter than you managing like a it's like a coach you know managing an all-star team is a lot different than managing a club team so when you put those high performance athletes in a dressing room what a different dynamic that is so what did you find for you was the adjustment factor when you started to recruit and attract no i know it wasn't a straight line you had some hits and misses as people always do right trying to find the best talent but once you got a really talented group together how did it make you change your leadership approach that's a good question i i i think the simple answer is i i think we just talked it through together so how do we hire the next engineering leader where do we go how do we how do we vet it out and we learned, we said, you know, a culture is a big piece of it to say, mm-hmm. you know, I think, you know, your all-star team example is, is a good one, you know, and even see it now that, you know, a hockey team, the really great talented hockey players that really succeed are also pretty good leaders. Like they, they, they know what works well. They're really good at their job, but they're not they're I, I forget the term you used about ego a second ago, but the, the, if their egos are driving their day, if they have to be recognized as the best, the brightest in the room all the time, no one wants to be with them. Like it gets tired pretty quick. So I think hiring people that can um, look at the betterment of the organization versus the betterment of themselves, right? If they're career driven, and I think, you know, people need to be hungry to learn, but if they're hungry for status, it's, I wouldn't want to work with them, to be honest with you. Like I want people who want to succeed and get better at what they do. And, and then accolades come to their career. But if they do that, if there's a fine line between doing that for yourself and doing it for the organization. And um, yeah, so I think, I think having people on the team and understanding, Hey, this is, and maybe the ownership thing helped. Cause I, I knew I was, financially better off if the company did really well than if I became CEO. Yeah. It, it created the, like you, it's, it sounds like what you're describing, which I think you're, you're really onto something is you need to win a championship. You need not only talented people, but they have to be, they have to get that the other absolute critical skill is their ability to do what's right for the business, not just for their yeah. own little area oh, yeah. and their own ego and their own, you know, like in a hockey dressing room, well, I put up my 40 goals and 60 assists and I'm on the all-star team. So I had a good year. I really don't really care if we win the Stanley Cup. Well, there's a lot of teams like that. But what creates winning franchises year over year, you know, whether it's the run the Patriots got on in, in the NFL or when the Habs were winning Stanley Cups in the 70s, time after time, you know, those franchises just got in such a great role. Well, if you look at those dressing rooms and the same thing in business, you hire really talented people who also care 
mostly about what's right for the business and secondarily about what's good for them, that's when the magic happens. Yeah. And you see about the negative side of that is you see the other side where, you know, I, I won't say names, but there was, you know, a, a leader I worked with that was just all about if you helped him, if he, he would buddy up to people and, and, and pay them more. And, and, you know, if, you know, kind of have them in his pocket, you know, oh, yeah. and it's just so disgusting to work for a person like that. And, and I, I, I just, you know, it just, it's so fleeting. Right. And, but if, if you're inexperienced, you know, if, if I didn't get exposed to a good culture, I don't think I would know better. And I think that's the difference now. I'd say there's a lot of books on culture. There's not a lot of companies that do culture well. No, and you can't, like I was saying before, I, I've tried sending books to people or trying to help them experience through, say, a conversation with someone who's been through it. But until they internalize it and have been through it, or you can at least help them reflect back on, well, what was it like when you had a crappy boss who was abusive and bullying compared to when you had a great one? That tends to crystallize their thinking and get them to get it, to, to what you said earlier. Some people just don't get it. Well, that's the best thing I've ever been able to do. Because if they don't get it, you, you you can talk to them all day long and they're just not going to change or shift their behavior and see the opportunity behind it, no matter how much data you throw at it. Like I have, I remember I had a client once and I, and I, I sent them the book and then I said, well, you know, so-and-so, someone who he had worked with before. I said, they've got a case study that I've gotten permission to share with you that over the past three years, look at their financial performance and its correlation to when they started really investing in culture and what they're being able to create three years later. And then he went to a presentation where she presented the data. Now, I had to present it for her because her daughter got sick, but it was her data. And I said, you know, the last minute she had to cancel her flight, but here it is. And he's in the room listening to this. And I went and talked to him later. And he looked at me and it was like, in his brain, I could see his brain was processing it, but I knew his feet weren't going to change their direction. He was not going to. And in fact, he stood there in front of somebody else and said, well, at our company, we have a great culture. And I'm thinking, man, you don't know that three of your people called me last week trying to get out. Mm. It's know, hard, so right? It's think, really hard I, until I people can internalize a... it and reflect yeah. on it. And then see maybe looking retrospectively what explains the difference in their own performance. Yeah. Now, once yeah. they get it, must be fun. Like you must have a lot of fun with the clients you work with that you don't have to sell them on the idea of investing in culture. So what's that like when you've got a leader or a client that gets it and wants to move forward? What do you find yourself talking about with them? Yeah, I, I, I think it's, I don't think anybody fully gets it. Right. I think it's a journey and so it's just helping them on that journey. I think one of the things, you know, you and I are part of this leader impact group and we we talk about all aspects of our life and and there's something about being able to, you know, so part of that is kind of the face side of things, but I I so I can't help but think of good leaders that have to like to me any good leader that I've worked for has cared about me becoming better. Yeah. Right. I think it's the most important word when I'm listening to feedback for leaders. And I do this quite a bit. You and I talked about this uh, previous occasion Uh, during COVID, you know, it was hard to uh, 
focus on organizational health and leadership because they were so transactional sitting on laptops looking at people all day right it was tough it was tough on people's psyche but it was also difficult to move people forward on their personal professional development journey so one of my clients came to me and said you know we're we want to help this guy be self-aware we hesitate to do a 360 because people are so overwhelmed. They're on their laptops all the time. We, he's got a young team. They're not going to want to fill out a 45-minute survey. What do you think we could do? And by necessity, we came up with this idea. Well, why don't we just do a 180 for him on, on a Zoom call? You know, Have him come and describe how he would ideally like to be described as a leader, what his core values are, organize his concepts around key, key core capabilities that were critical to his job, Make sure it's clear what you know what his team should expect of him, and then let him get off the call for forty-five minutes, and I'll gather feedback about what he's doing great and what they want him to change. So we did that, and the individual came back on the call, and it was an interesting conversation to unpack what what they were seeing and get them let them watch him unpack it, and 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 see it and and appreciate it, and then try to pivot and adjust his behavior. But all that to say that. What one of the things we we struggle with when it comes to let's say culture and sh- shifting people's leadership is until I hear the words from the team that he cares or she cares about us, I know that they haven't tapped into their leadership potential. Caring and empathy to me have become I don't know if it's just in the in the environment we are post COVID. Maybe this was always the case and I'm just figuring it out. But I, I think leaders who genuinely care about the other and and that's their first orientation, you know, be, beyond what we were talking about earlier, they got to do what's right for the business. But once they do that, if they really genuinely care about the folks that they've been given responsibility for, if they have empathy, that's going to carry them a long way. They'll figure everything else out that they hear back in those uh, zoom calls or 360 feedbacks but if at the end of the day they can't bring themselves to care about the people around them it shouldn't be a people leader yeah and if you, you find the same know, thing like you can't absolutely. teach it and I, I think we talked about this before it's just i'm not uh, you know if it's a 360 feedback where you're getting all this external um information from people that don't say who they are like you don't know who the feedback's from i'm i'm, I'm not a fan if you're in the room Lencioni does this thing where he just gets a, the leadership team together and he starts with the leader and he says kind of what you just described. He said, Hey, tell me what you're, uh, where you, you know, basically what, what should you keep doing, do more of what should you stop doing and mm-hmm. what should you just start to, where do you think you're at? And, and then, then he literally go around the room real time and say, how's, how's Duncan doing at that? You start with the leader and, and, They'll they'll say three great things that you know that I do well, and then they'll tell me this area. Yeah, you need work, right? And everybody else in the room is nodding, right? And and you, <laughs> well, that's that's caring. That's not like most people think caring is being nice. Yeah, you're you're going to be nice, but you're going to be real. Like if you really care for someone to be better, you're going to give them the honest truth in a way that's caring. And I don't. I I think until you can do that in, at a team level where people, you'll know if people care. If someone's trying to one-up someone else in that room when you're doing a, a, a thing like that and they're, 
you know, basically saying, I want your job, then it's not a team. No. Like there's, so there's that whole idea of checking your ego. Like to do that, you have to have a, a low ego. So it's counterintuitive. So you have to be confident as a leader to lead well, but you also more importantly need to be able to make it about the organization and, and the way the organization is going to win is those people that you lead just go way beyond what you thought they ever could. Yeah. Yeah, Listen, as, as we wind up our conversation today, one question I'd be very intrigued by because of your unique journey, you know, the, the day that you decided to join your brother's company, and I can imagine what that felt like. If, the Duncan today could go back and talk to that kid because <laughs> you were probably just still a kid in a sense. What would be the biggest thing you'd say, hey, knucklehead, here's what you're going to learn of all the things that you're going to go through in the next 20 some years. Get ready for this one because this one will be the most important thing you're going to learn. What, what, what would be the biggest lesson that came from that experience? Right. So that's you've asked me questions like this before and i think that i think the biggest thing that i know now that i'm and i'm still not i'm still learning how to do it well is i i think people are good at assessing who they're talking to um quickly so you get an opinion oh this person's not very good at this and and they're they might be good at that but that's not what we're talking about so you know you kind of shut down and you 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 know, it's one of the seven habits is seek first to understand, right? Like mm-hmm. really be inquisitive about what the person's bringing to the table and what they're saying before you start telling them what they need to do. And I think I was brutal at that early on. I just knew that they were wrong and I could tell them how to do it better. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, it sounds terrible and it is terrible, but I think now in the nuance of that, in in I have to learn to listen more and really unpack what a, where a person's at so that they can um, know that I know what they're trying to transmit so that I can, we can sort things out together. I think that skill in, in coming at someone in a real caring way, and it takes time. So, it, you know, as a leader, you got to balance your time and who you do that with, but you're better not to have a conversation than to have a conversation with someone that you're just telling them what to do. Cause then you're just, managing you could send an email you could do whatever right and but if you're going to engage with someone in that way i think that's what i would take to the table if i could have just honed that skill um like i'm trying to hone it now early on i think i think you know things would have gone even even better yeah it's so interesting that that would be your biggest takeaway i was just with um couple of new people who are starting their sales careers in life science where I started quite 40 years ago. It was, and even one of them even has the geography I used to cover. And here's my client saying, okay, we want to help these people get off to a good start. And one of them had the uh, brilliance to ask a question. They looked at me and realized I'm old, but I've been doing this for a long time. So like, you know, if we, if you and I were, when we were 20 years old, we ran into Gordy Howe and at the hockey rink and wouldn't we be smart and say, Hey Gordy, you know, what's the secret to your success? <laughs> you look at someone who obviously has had a great run and you're in the field that you're thinking about. So this young lady said to me, 
So what's the most important thing for us to know as we start taking this training course? Like, what's the biggest lesson you learned? Uh, and she said to both her boss, who was on the call with us, and, and me, so I let him answer. I heard myself say exactly what you just said. I said, you know, I was brash and full of myself. And the thing I finally learned to do well, which I, if I could go back to that 22-year-old that started in the industry, as you guys are starting here right now, I would say the most important skill you can have is going to your customers. And I know it's the antithesis of what you think salespeople are, but if you can show them that you really care about them and you listen really well, you will positively differentiate yourself from 90% of the salespeople who come through their door and, and you'll make a real connection that will serve you well. They will want to buy from you. And it's exactly that same takeaway, right? (laughs) Like seek to understand before being understood, have empathy, be a good listener, show you care. It's funny how those simple concepts are so difficult to understand. We had this phrase at creation because we, the customer relationships were so relational and we would just, you know, we'd, we'd, you know, we'd have customers where the relationship we were, we felt like we were performing amazing. Like we're on time. Delivery was through the roof. The quality was perfect. Everything was great. And we'd lose them. And we just have this line. It's all about relationship. So you can have a customer where you're screwing up royally. And and we had a couple of those where we, I remember just, I can't believe these guys are still dealing with us because if we do one more screw up like that again, we're done. Like we just can't do it. And we, it was new technology, new, all sorts of reasons why, but, but we had a great relationship with them and they knew we were busting our butts to get things right. And they stood by us and it was always, so we, that would be the line. Well, it's all about relationship. Like you can, you think you're the golden child for a customer because you're performing really well, but then someone else got a better relationship with them and they were the trust was higher and they moved the business and that was a kiss to death in our industry so you know it's it's i think it's akin to leading people well when you want when you you think of a customer relationship where it's it's people as well but you try and look at their business and say boy if we could do this for them they would love it yeah well why wouldn't you do the same thing for someone who's you know, that reports to you that is, is a leader. Why wouldn't you say, Hey, you're doing, you're doing great, but man, did you, did you ever think about trying this? Like yeah. you'd be amazing at it. Like and try this uh, because I care about you. Like, yeah. If it's underpinned by, I care about you, people will yeah. listen with a little old expression, right? Yeah. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It doesn't matter yeah. if that's sales or yeah. if you're the CEO Absolutely. of a company with leaders or whatever it is, or, yeah. And and I think Rob, if that doesn't bring you joy to be able to do that with someone, then get a different profession. Yeah, like, yeah. Don't, don't go into leader, people right? leadership or don't go into sales. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That's cool. That's pretty cool. Well, thanks for spending some time with us today. That was awesome. Oh, really appreciate the chance to connect. And uh I'm, I know we're gonna see each other every week, but it's really fun to have some dedicated time to catch up. No, that's great. It's good conversation and and congratulations on the 20 years. That's pretty cool what you're doing right now. So thanks. Yeah. I'd like to think I've got another 20 ahead of me, but we'll see God willing. That would be kind of cool. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, thanks Duncan. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. Take care, Rob. All the best.